0: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Sari Horwitz is co-author of a brand new book with her colleague, Scott Higgum. The title is American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry, Sari is a four-time Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter who's been at the Washington Post for four decades, where she's covered the Justice Department and criminal justice issues. Sari, nice to have you back on the program. I really appreciate your time. You should know, normally we demand five Pulitzer Prizes of our guests today. We are making an exception for you. (laughs) Thank
1: you, Michael, and thank you for having me on.
0: So right before the prologue in the book, which I've read and enjoyed, is a flow chart. the opioid supply chain. And at the top of the manufacturers and then the distributors, then the pharmacies, the trade associations, and finally the doctors. And I hope you'll find this interesting. If you had asked me before I read the book, where do I assign the most blame? I would have said with the manufacturers. In fact, I would have been more specific. I would have said Purdue. Having read the book, I don't think I could say that any one aspect of the flowchart is more responsible than any other. What would you say?
1: Well, that's exactly why we call it the American cartel.
0: You know, Michael, this
1: is a story that most people don't know about the opioid epidemic. You know, like, like you just said, most people think the Sacklers. They think Purdue yes. Pharma when right. they hear about the opioid epidemic. But that's not true while Purdue might have ignited the crisis, they eventually were prosecuted and faded into the background. And then what happened next, what Scott and I, Scott Hyam and I found in our two-year investigation for this book, is that lots of companies that Americans know well, Walgreens, Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, like you said in that flowchart, they moved into the market and they fueled what's now become the deadliest drug epidemic in American history. And one of those companies in the flowchart – Uh, We had not really heard much about before Mallinckrodt, but that company, based in St. Louis, now bankrupt, manufactured 30 pills for every one pill that the Sacklers sold. And the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, told us that they thought of that company as a drug
0: kingpin. So OxyContin was introduced by Purdue in 1996, am I right? Correct. And then there's a video that comes out in 1998, wherein they assert that the risk of addiction is less than 1%. And in the book, you discuss how you interviewed this. I think it was a BU doctor and drug specialist whose words gave rise to that assertion. What's that story
1: uh, yes, that's d- Dr. Jick, Jick the, the famous Jick and Porter letter to the editor in the uh, 1980s to the New England Journal of Medicine, and it wasn't a study at all. It was like a paragraph, um, and in a letter to the editor that talked about hospital patients not becoming d- addicted, less than 1%, and it was completely blown out of proportion, used by Purdue and other companies to tell doctors that less than 1% of people got addicted, and later... Uh, The doctor said he had no idea that was being used for that. And, of course, it was completely false and very misleading. And that allowed the manufacturers and the distributors, again, in that flow chart that in our book, to send a shocking hundred billion highly addictive and dangerous pain pills across the country, addicting millions of Americans. And, And I want to make clear, when these pain pills are used correctly in a hospital for hospice, for major surgery, for serious pain, Um, again, in a hospital setting, uh, they're good pills. But what happened in this case and what we really explain in our book is that they were diverted to the black market, and these companies knew they were being diverted.
0: Right, and that's where I wanted to go next. It's funny, you talk about, well, there's a lot of discussion in the book about trial lawyers in a good way, Uh, individuals like Paul Farrell in West Virginia Whose eye was turned one day when he's reading a story in the Charleston Gazette Mail. And I remember reading it as well, albeit not in that same outlet. This was the report that said that drunk companies had sent, let me look at my notes, 780 million prescription pain pills to West Virginia uh, in a, I think, six year period, 433 pills for every man, woman, and child in the state. And I wanted to ask you, Sari so where did all those pills go?
1: Yeah, all those pills went to people who became addicted, and many of them died. You know, DEA agents called these company executives drug dealers in business suits. And we tell this incredible story in the book about a DEA agent named Joe Renazzisi. And he was a longtime agent for 30 years, and he was in charge of the unit that policed the drug industry. And he saw that... This went beyond the doctors. This went beyond the pharmacies. It went to the distributors who were illegally, they were skirting the law and they were breaking the law by distributing, as you said, these millions of pills into places like West Virginia. And he warned them. He sent them letters. He and his team warned them. And then he started shutting down their warehouses and forcing these companies to pay millions of dollars in fines, which of course angered the distributors and the manufacturers And the drug industry fought back. First, they went to court and tried to uh, fight the DEA. They lost there. And then they turned to Congress. And they had high-paid lobbyists. They had lawyers, campaign contributions. And they were able to get a law passed that kneecapped the DEA, greatly weakened the ability of the government to come after them. And then, this is unbelievable, Michael, they then went after Joe, the DEA agent that was trying to protect all of us, and they basically, the drug industry, crushed him and his team, and he was forced out of the government. You know, as seriously, this is like a John Grisham novel, except, sadly, it's true. Every step was just astounding to us about what these I
0: mean, you tell are. the story about how he's essentially ostracized to the point that there's a ceremony they normally go through. What is it? They give you your credentials on your last day at the DEA? And he doesn't even get that accolade.
1: He's so, and he's so disgusted by the whole thing, by the, by the time they pushed him to a desk with nothing to do, you know, he was, he was ready to leave. And, and the other disgust, the other thing that disgusted him and other DEA agents is what we highlight in the book, The Revolving Door of Washington, where these drug companies lured with, with big salaries, lured DEA agents, lured people from the Justice Department, former Deputy Attorneys General, to come work for them. So Basically, the people who are in place to protect us, Michael, the people who are there to enforce the laws uh, that control dangerous narcotics, they left, they went to work for drug companies and began working against us. And we tell that story through one particular agent, uh, Lyndon Barber, who worked with Joe Remizzisi. He tried to shut some of these company warehouses down. Then he left the government to become an attorney representing the drug industry, and he helped pass the law. That was uh, he helped write the law. I'm sorry, passed by Congress at the height of the epidemic, an epidemic that has killed 600,000 people, and that law gutted the ability of the DEA to go after these companies. It was just astonishing.
0: And you you name names: Marsha Blackburn, Tom Marino, at the top of that list, right? Yes, they uh, Tom
1: Marino and Marsha Blackburn. You know, ironically, they represented states: Pennsylvania ten, and Tennessee that were very hard hit by this epidemic. But they they, you know, got a lot of campaign contributions from the drug industry and they sponsored this law that, that gutted the D E A. And you know, there's a scene in our book where Marsha Blackburn is questioning Joe Renazizi, again the DEA agent, trying to protect all of us. And she ignores him. She keeps interrupting him. She ignores him. She asks questions to him that were written, and we proved this in our book, written by lobbyists for the drug industry. And they, they, we, we got a hold of those emails. And then she just, you see her in the hearing,
0: just parroting. They were also, the they were also nonsensical. I mean, those questions were ridiculous. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses
1: Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
0: Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Hey, I, I want to read a paragraph from your book. So Joe... Rena Zizi, who you've already identified and described, dispatches Ruth Carter, a 20 year, a 23 year veteran of the DEA to go to Florida. And, and then there's this on page 65 Two, this is what she sees two CVS pharmacies in Sanford along with two independent pharmacies on the west coast of Florida, stood out for the eye-popping amounts of oxycodone they were dispensing. Carter swung by the CVS stores. How could pharmacies in one of America's biggest chains be running up street gang numbers? What she saw stunned the seasoned investigator. Parking lots filled with cars and trucks bearing out-of-state license plates, Long lines of customers spilled out of the door. Many customers paid cash for their pills. Queues at the drive-through windows curled around the stores. Most prescriptions were written for 30 milligram oxycodone tablets, the quote-unquote blues manufactured by Malacrot. So, I mean, the naked eye could see exactly what was taking place. The pharmacies knew exactly what was happening.
1: And if you continue in that chapter, what happens is she goes and interviews the pharmacists. She goes and interviews pharmacists at one of the pharmacies and they said, Oh yes, but we cut off that line at about 2 PM. I believe she said, because we want to save the rest of the supply for our real pain patients. So they knew that the people buying it before 2 PM were drug abusers you know, people who were going to sell it on the black market were not the real pain patients, and that was just so stunning that I think Ruth Carter called over a witness to hear that because she couldn't believe what she was hearing. They clearly knew what was going on, and you know what we found from internal emails that we were able to get through legal action is that the companies knew exactly where their pills were going. Um, they had a well. It sounds like
0: tobacco. I mean, it sounds like the the whole tobacco thing redux.
1: Exactly, and and we were able to get emails that not only that they knew where the where the pills were going, like you said, similar to tobacco, but they there were emails where they were laughing about it, where they were making fun of oh, the
0: addicts. Sorry, I have to. I, I'm not giving away American cartel for free. I promise, but you must tell the story. Amerisource Bergen. I'm in the I'm in Philadelphia and know the Philly burbs well. And of course, you know they're local to us. The Beverly yes. Hillbillies parody. What am I making reference to?
1: So Bergen again, height of the opioid epidemic. They clearly know what's going on. Tens of thousands of people are dying. And Bergen, a distributor, they're a manufacturers, distributors, pharmacies, they're a distributor, executives there pass around a parody. And it's to the tune of the Beverly Hillbillies sitcom theme song from the 60s. Everybody probably remembers that about Jed. Of course. And they changed the words to make fun of the pillbillies driving to Florida to buy their Oxy. And and, they're, and they had emojis, uh, like smiley faces, as they passed this around. I mean, really callous, upsetting things. And that's what I mean by making fun of the addicts.
0: Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed. A poor mountaineer barely kept his habit fed. Then one day he was looking at some tube and saw that Florida had a lax attitude about pills, that is, hillbilly heroin, O.C., oxycodone. And then, of course, there's more to it. The first thing you know, old Jed's driving south, and on and on it goes. Really, really stunning. Uh, final question. First of all, I think I mispronounced your co-author's name, and with a name like Smirkanish, I hate to do that. How does Scott pronounce his last name? Scott Hyam. Scott Hyam. Sorry, Scott. Uh, Sari, where are we today?
1: All right. Here is where we are today. There have been so 4,000 cities, towns, counties, Indian nations have sued the drug industry, 24 companies. There have been trials. There have been settlements. There was a, a massive settlement in February of $26 billion that will be paid out to these communities over 18 years for drug prevention, treatment, and education. But Sadly, where we are now is this has gone from a prescription pill epidemic into a fentanyl epidemic. And here's where it's linked. We've been down to the border. Scott was just down there. I've been down there. Um, and we are seeing fentanyl pouring over the southwest border. And what's happening is it's coming in pills, counterfeit pills. And amazingly, these pills look just like Malincrot, oxycodone pills. This is the tie end to the prescription pill epidemic. So, Mel- Malincrot is out of business, but their 30 milligram oxycodone pills were so popular on the street that the Mexican cartels are making what looks like a Malincrot 30 oxycodone. Inside is fentanyl, and that is killing so many people. 100,000 people died of opioid overdoses last year, most of them from fentanyl. So, people should be warning their kids do not take a pill that you don't know what it is from a party or on the street because it could kill you instantly
0: oh my god how frightening sari horwitz thank you so much it's it's really a, it's really i don't want to say it's it's not a fun read it's it's not a how do i say it it's important that's what it is it's damn it's important revealing.
1: it's revealing
0: <laughs> it is revealing thank you see that that would have been my blurb for the back but you you already had uh woodward so You didn't need me. American Cartel is the name of the book, and I appreciate your willingness to come by and discuss it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Sari. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live
1: weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app.
0: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays.